You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello again, this is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology, welcoming you to the March edition of Editor's Picks. This month, I will begin by speaking to Dr. Titilola Velasinu, who is the first author of an article titled The Problem of Pain in Rheumatology, Variations in Case Definition Derived from Chronic Pain Phenotyping Algorithms Using Electronic Health Records. She will give you an overview and a summary of the important findings of this paper. And so what do you think the implications and the conclusions are? The take-home messages that our readers are, is it good? Do you have proposed algorithms if you are going to use EMRs or we shouldn't just base it on this? What do you think? So um, I uh, read the um, editorial that was written about the paper and you know the, the authors mentioned that our paper is a cautionary tale for using EHR. And I couldn't have written written it better. Um, and that said, our study has several important implications and conclusions. First is that this was the first empirical study to our knowledge to show that established common modes of um, phenotyping chronic pain can lead to substantially varying estimations of the prevalence of chronic pain. So this underscores the importance of accurate case definitions for chronic pain in EHRs. Second is that um, by comparing different phenotyping algorithms, we created a reference for biases in case definitions of chronic pain in EHR. For example, these findings could be used to estimate the extent of possible misclassifications or corrections when using data sets that cannot include specific data um, elements. Like I mentioned before, um, in the US, we have administrative claims data that include Medicaid and also children market scan, which are employer-based um, databases. And third, in terms of clinical relevance, these findings emphasize the need for improved understanding and management of chronic pain in rheumatology practice. And given its impact of, on quality of life and healthcare utilization, addressing chronic pain is crucial for optimizing patient care and outcomes. And um, lastly, our study's findings have implications for research methodologies and health policy decisions related to chronic pain in rheumatology and writ large. Um, it underscores the need for accurate data collection and robust methodologies to inform evidence-based practices and policy interventions. I hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. Velasenu on behalf of all the authors of the paper, The Problem of Pain in Rheumatology, Variations in Case Definitions Derived from Chronic Pain Phenotyping Algorithms Using Electronic Health Records. I think you will also enjoy listening to the full interview with Dr. Felicinu and reading the full-length article, which is currently available on our website at www.jroom.org. As well, there is an accompanying editorial titled, Are Electronic Health Records Sufficiently Accurate to Phenotype Rheumatology Patients with Chronic Pain? And this is by Drs. Hans Clark and Marianne 
Fitzcharles from the University of Toronto, Toronto, Canada, and McGill University, Montreal, Canada, respectively. The editorialists review the paper and put in perspective of other findings. A good response to non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents or NSAIDs is considered to be an important item in the 2009 Assessment of Spondyloarthritis International Society, or ASAS, classification for axial spondyloarthritis, or AXPA. The aim of the study title, A Good Response to Non-Steroidal Anti-Inflammatory Drugs Does Not Discriminate Patients with Long-Standing Axial Spondyloarthritis from Controls with Chronic Back Pain, is by Berilakos and co-authors with the aim to determine if the response to NSAID therapy differed between patients with long-standing axial spa and back pain controls or non-spa patients. In order to achieve the same, the investigators compared 68 consecutive patients seen in their outpatient clinic with axial spa and to 165 patients with chronic back pain who had either nonspecific low back pain or degenerative lesion leading to back pain. All patients were asked to discontinue their NSAID for at least 48 hours prior to the study. At the time of the study, a pain score was obtained and NSAID was then restarted. Baseline, the mean ages were similar between the two groups as were the duration of symptoms and the pain scores. The authors found that 39.9% as compared to 21.1% of the patients respectively showed any response, while 23.5% of the axial spa patients versus 16.4% of the non-spa patients showed a good response after four weeks. However, neither of these differences were statistically significant. The authors also found there was no difference in the rapidity of response or between any of the subgroups of patients based on demographics, including the different stages of axial spa. After reading this paper, you will be able to determine if you agree with the authors who concluded that the study showed that a good response to NSAID did not differentiate between patients with axial spa and those with chronic low back pain of another cause. And therefore, the ASAS classification criteria of response to NSAIDs needs further study. The next paper to highlight is titled Sensitivity and Specificity of Composite Indices of Remission in Male and Female Patients with psoriatic arthritis, a multi-center cross-sectional study of longitudinal cohorts, and is by Perotta and co-authors. The aim of this study would determine if there were any sex differences in the sensitivity and specificity of the following composite scores. 
One, minimal disease activity, or MDA. Two, disease activity score for psoriatic arthritis, DAPSA. And three, psoriatic impact of disease, or PSA. With respect to clinical remission, as evaluated by both the patients and physicians. Overall, 272 patients with PSA were examined from two centers in Italy. Of these 272 patients, 141 were male, 131 were females, and mean age was 56 years. The authors found that there was agreement for remission, for remission between patient and physician perspective, this association was moderate for both sexes, although slightly better in male patients. When physicians' assessments were examined, the investigators found that the MDA had good sensitivity and specificity regarding remission for both sexes. They found that remission by the DAPSA had excellent specificity but poor sensitivity for both sexes. However, the DAPSA was found to be slightly more sensitive and specific in males, in females as compared to males. Again, in the physician's judgment, the PASAID of less than or equal to four had excellent sensitivity but poor specificity. And again, this was the same for both sexes. I want to highlight area of the results section where the authors have an excellent graphic illustration of the findings that I think you will find useful. In the discussion, the authors review the clinical implications of the study for routine clinical care as well as some of the, their, the limitations. Although in animals, knee mobilization and flexion position suggested that there is an association with load-bearing and cartilage integrity, it is not as clear in humans. Therefore, Campbell and co-authors in a paper title, Patients with Knee OA and Flexion Contracture Developed Localized Tibial Articular Cartilage Loss Data from the Osteoarthritis Initiative examined if a flexion contracture was associated with localized tibial articular cartilage loss over a one-year period. The investigators compared changes in cartilage thickness as measured by MRI in the center anterior and posterior regions of both the medial and lateral tibial condyles in 388 patients with OA who had full knee extension to 190 patients who lacked full knee extension or the flexion contracture group. They found that there was a significant positive, i.e. protective, association between a knee flexion contracture and medial tibial posterior cartilage 
thickness, but a negative correlation with the medial center cartilage. When they examined the lateral, t- lateral tibial condyle, there was a trend for association with denuded bone in the anterior region. The other areas, they did not find significant associations. The authors concluded that the findings of their study support the hypothesis that knee flexion contracture in patients with OA is associated with declining articular health in the unloaded anterior and central regions as compared to the posterior regions where loading is preserved. The authors reviewed the mechanisms leading to these findings and the clinical implications for the care of patients with OA and of knee flexion contracture. In December 2021, the U.S. FDA granted emergency use authorization for the use of a combination of two monoclonal antibodies, tixagevinomab, um, silgavimab. These two monoclonals are directed against the receptor-binding domain of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. The authorization was for pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP, for people who are moderately to severely immunocompromised. In a study titled Breakthrough COVID-19 after tixagenovab, silgavimab among patients with systemic autoimmune, uh, autoimmune rheumatic diseases, Cavano and co-authors examined the incidence and factors associated with breakthrough COVID-19 after the PrEP with the above-named monoclonal antibodies. 444 patients with a systemic autoimmune disease, or SARD, were studied over a 10-and-a-half-month period. The mean age of patients was 62 years, and 80, 78.2% were female, and 79.3% were male. The most common SARD was RA at 43.7%, followed by SLE in 14.9% of the patients. 48.7% had received a CD20 inhibitor. The authors found Breakthrough COVID-19 infections in 18.7% of the patients for an incident rate of 31.5 per uh, per 1,000 person months. The median time to symptomatic infection was 146 days following PrEP. Of the 83 breakthrough infections, Only seven resulted in a hospitalization, which was 1.6% of the total cohort, and there was one death, or 0.2% of the cohort. They found that older age was associated with a lower incidence of breakthrough COVID-19 infection with an adjusted hazard ratio of 0.86 per 10 years, 
as were higher baseline spike antibody levels with an adjusted hazard ratio of 0.42 when the antibody level was greater than 200 units. They also found that CD20 inhibitors users had a similar risk of breakthrough COVID-19 infection as compared to conventional synthetic DMAR users with a hazard ratio of 1.05. The results of this study were reassuring regarding efficacy of this PrEP in patients with a SAR during the study period. Although they did found, find that the, there were frequent breakthrough infections, there was a lower incidence of severe COVID-19 infections than reported in earlier studies where patients did not receive PrEP. However, it must be noted that the U.S. FDA withdrew emergency use authorization of the use of this monoclonal antibody combination at the end of 2022, when it was recognized that this combination of monoclonal antibodies did not neutralize the SARS variants that were prevalent by then. This offers a cautionary note as we continue to fight COVID-19. In a accompanying editorial titled The Future of COVID-19 Infections for Patients with Immune-Mediated Inflammatory Diseases. Who is at risk? Dr. Cassandra Calabrese from the Cleveland Clinic, Cleveland, USA, examines the issue of which patients with ASARD are at the highest risk for severe COVID-19 infection and therefore may be good candidates for PrEP products, vaccine boosters, and antiviral agents. Both of these articles are important reading as, unfortunately, the COVID-19 pandemic continues. The expert review in rheumatology this month is titled The Critical Role of Physical Activity and Weight Management in Knee and Hip Osteoarthritis, a Narrative Review. And as you may have guessed from the title, the authors review the evidence for the importance of physical activity and weight management of, for OA of the lower limb, as this affects a large portion of our rheumatology population, it becomes important reading. The article for this month, Panorama 360 Degrees of Rheumatology, is entitled Rheumatology in Cameroon, History, Challenges, and Future. In this article, the authors, as may be guessed, review the history, the challenge, and the future of rheumatology in this small country, which has 35 rheumatologists and is in sub-Sahara, Saharan Africa. The image in rheumatology is titled, A Familiar Face in an Unfamiliar Place. Intraosseous rheumatoid arthritis nodule. The image is that is a CT scan of the lung of a 67-year-old man with a four-year history of rheumatoid arthritis with associated interstitial lung disease. 
The image shows a lytic lesion in the inferior angle of the scapula, which was initially noted two years ago and has been slowly growing. MR of this lesion showed a contrast-enhancing lesion in the marrow of the clavicle with a cortical defect and extraosseous expansion. Authors reviewed a differential diagnosis of the lesion and a biopsy showed necrobiotic granuloma consistent with a diagnosis of an intraosseous rheumatoid nodule. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and encourage you to read not only the articles I've highlighted, but all the articles in the March 2024 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology, either in the print edition or online, which is available at www.jroom.org. And I encourage you to watch the, all my interviews of highlighted articles if you have missed them and certainly my interview of this month they are all available at our website and at our youtube channel if you have any comments or questions on the highlighted or any articles in the march edition of the journal of rheumatology please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com and please join me next month for the April 2024 edition of Editor's Highlights. Thanks.